Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to tonight's edition of The Boldness on the 30th December. The Boldness is about standing up for people's rights with a disability instead of waiting for some well-meaning people to give them to you. On tonight's show, we've got a very, very special guest. We've got Sarah Jane Woolahan, an independent filmmaker, and we are talking about disability and entertainment. So if you've got a disability and you make New Year's resolutions, this is one show you won't want to miss. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hello, nice to be here. Now, for the purpose of this interview, we're going to call you SJ. It makes life a lot easier. I'm totally happy with that. That's really my name anyway, so let's roll with it. Okay, now, is it disability and entertainment? You've been making films and videos for a long time. What's it actually like? Making films? That's right. Uh, It's uh, incredibly enjoyable, cathartic, annoying, difficult, uh, stressful, wonderful, you know, I could just keep going forever. It's all of those things, one after the other, until you finish, and then you're very sad that it's done, and then you want to do the next one. Well, the way you've actually described making films, it's a bit like having a disability. Having a disability is all of these <laughs> things too, you know. It can be sad. Maybe that's just life. Maybe life is like that. It can, it can be very sad and very, very <laughs> traumatic here. But, like, as part of making films is that in 2015, you've produced a film called Ward of a State. Can you talk us through that? It's a story about a disability. Well, yeah, well that's true. So, uh, so Ward of State uh, was a project that was initiated by a choreographer called Claire Marshall, who's from Brisbane. And actually, she researched into her family history and found that um, one of her distant relatives was taken from her mother um, and placed in a convent where they had to work in the laundry. So that was very common. Like there was a lot of people with disabilities, um, Indigenous children, women who uh, were pregnant early and sort of cast away from their families. So, so lots of different reasons. Ward of State focused on one child who grew up in the convent. It kind of follows the story of her, I guess, sexual abuse, her stepfather and her trying to sort of be reunited with her mother. And the whole film is done through dance. There's no dialogue. It's like a half an hour film and where the choreography has been done by Claire and I acted as screen director. And yeah, it was like an incredible, like wonderful process to, to sort of create a film entirely where the emotions are communicated through intense dance and you, you did actually really feel what was going on or, and I guess it became more like a melodrama or an opera when um, you're telling a story like that rather than through dialogue. One of the best things about dance is if a person's got a disability, there are things like wheelchair dancing. It's an excellent way for people to actually express themselves. Is that one of the reasons that it was chosen to express a film purely as a visual format? to tell a story like that? I guess because uh, the creator of the project was a choreographer, that that's how she communicates and that's her uh, artistic form is through dance. Um, And I think she has worked with people with disability in dance um, previously. But specific to this project, in order for it to be accurate, um, there was people who were forced to live in that convent who were disabled because their families rejected them. So in order to sort of create a sense of realism, there needed to be pregnant women and disabled people and because um, so, that reflected the types of people that were like 
turned away from society at that time. And was, and I guess still are now, but to a, like a, a much more acceptable level in the 90s and 20s and 30s, which is when this was set. Now, in uh, 2014, there was the Goff Festival, and I came across this fant- similar quote, which I'm going to paraphrase you, SJ. It was about one of the things that you really admired female directors who pushed on the creativity edge and did not follow conventional thinking because it was more challenging. Is that, is that one of the reasons you took the role as an independent uh, film screen director for this role? Uh, well, I guess uh, I guess that's like a life choice, isn't it? Like to, you can either go follow what the ex- accepted or more maybe like the less risky ways to follow life, right? Or the ones that have more security or comfort or you can do things that I guess are challenging or interesting or that are exploring yourself or pushing things. So um, so you can make that choice as a person in life or, or you can in, in terms of a art form. Um, so... I guess, like in terms of it being a female creator, then like maybe you could say that like we the history of art creation is mostly ninety nine percent of men creating art, and that's like the you know we we can look back at history and it's not even we don't have the like a a, a lot of examples of female artists in, in before kind of modern times. So if uh, females are making art, then um, there should, I guess, there's a different perspective. There was a different process, or there's something. So they should be pushing something rather than copying what has come before. As an independent filmmaker, like I think you've made videos for people like Silverchair, REM, and Missy Higgins. Now, this is pure entertainment. Is that what's that kind of experience like? Well, not REM. I have to say that, um, but uh, who else? Like Living End and Sleepy Jackson, Tim Finn. So m- making a music video is a really different process to making a drama or something that what you've written because you're taking somebody else's creative work and interpreting it. So you, it's still, I, I still see it as like an, um, an art project that you're devising and creating yourself, but it is in response to someone else's and it needs to support and communicate what... Um, they are trying to communicate. So you're working in collaboration with them rather than your own kind of separate um, artwork. So um, I've always seen like what you're doing with music videos is just sort of really intensely listening to and understanding um, one, the song, what the song is about through its lyrics or its mood or its tone. Um, then also the the performer themselves, like who who are they, what are they trying to communicate about themselves on a superficial level about their look and their vibe and what genre they belong to. But uh, also like in terms of their emotional selves, what are they trying to communicate to their audience or what do their fans understand about them? So um, I, I mean, in terms of the making process, what what's, can be, was always really exciting about music videos is every time, you know, they're short products. So, and if, you, if you're doing a lot of them, every time you enter into one, it's completely different. It's a different world. It's a different production design world. It's a different story. It's a different mood or tone or camera trick. Or um, So there's just a, like a, a really great ability to experiment or sort of jump into a world for a period of time while you're in that production. So it can be really satisfying on that level. Now, is it... In 2014, you also made a series of music videos for Wild at Heart, along with the uh, crew, hip hop, the Too Hot to Handle crew, which is also a part of Wild at Heart. Let's have a, a little bit of a chat about what's it like making videos with people with a disability. Is it any different? 
Um, I, I, I wouldn't say it was actually any different. What I would say is, particularly with the Wild at Heart group, that um, what was intended to be communicated was actually much clearer than sometimes when you're working with pop songs. Like one of the things that I was always really disappointed with sometimes is that you'd almost have to be telling the artist what their song was about. In some cases, they didn't even really seem to care. <laughs> like there, there was a sort of an abstraction or maybe they just didn't want to... The, maybe it's cool not to really be saying something very clear. I think that's maybe a fashion thing that, that you know, oh, you, you know, you can take it how you want or we want audiences to be able to interpret what this song is about or that kind of thing, which has never really been my interest. I like things that attempt to communicate or say something. So I would say with the Wild at Heart group, with every song there was a very clear intention to communicate a previous experience or emotion or a struggle. Um, and so, like, therefore the the discussing about how you might interpret their songs becomes more obvious or more honest, I think. Now, we're going to play a couple of these songs and we're going to play one of the tracks now. It's called Attitude Princess by the Freewheeling Spirits. Why waste time? Think something you're not. One look in the mirror, you know she's hot. I call her attitude princess, and her brother calls her bitch. I never call you kid. Freedom stop being bitch. Not this modesty, the guy stop and stare. A personal pole dance with the show girls play. A collar attitude princess and her brother calls her bitch. I never call you bitch. Freedom's not being bitch. You won't get anywhere. If you can't dance without a floorboard addition, you don't stand a chance. A colour attitude princess and her brother calls a bitch. I never call you cute. Freedom's not being bitch. That's a new version. Have you updated that track? It just sounds it's like even more rocky, maybe. You know, right. You've got a new rocky vibe there. Well, that was the original version uh, by the Freewheeling Spirits, but that was part of a series of six videos that you made with Wild Heart with working with people with disability. Others which spread really to mind, I think, was Lithium Ladium, There Were Sutures in the Heart, St. Kilda Man, and the Attitude Princess video. What kind of time frame are you looking at to actually make your video of a day? Can you actually get the whole video shot in one hour or is it a whole day process? Um, well, I mean, the film production is completely different. Like you can you could spend forever on making something if you want to do Like if, if you're doing an animation, some people will spend six months making like a video. Um, or if you have very limited time and resources, you can do it in, in an hour. What comes first is the limitations. 
um, and then you, you you construct or create what needs to be done from that. And it, it depends on the type of treatment you want to do. If you want to create something that's really narrative that has like a drama element that becomes more time consuming than if you're filming a live performance, like then that becomes you your recording of it becomes dictated by the length of the the, the performance. Yeah, it's like a how long is a piece of string kind of question. The more time, the better, because then you can finesse or create lots of um, details. Or, um, But some things just have a kind of more uh, like in the moment kind of process, like St. Kilderman, uh, the idea for that video was that there was like a street party. So Tom lived in the, a flat next door um, to the Gatwick and had been there for 20 years or something, I think. Oh, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, so yeah. Um, like we gathered a whole lot of people and had couches out the front um, and it became like a street party and were people, you know, dancing and him singing and performing and, and it had a, a kind of like a loose a realism kind of vibe. And so that could be done within a couple of hours and it wasn't really necessary that you would stretch it out because you're not stylizing it or make, trying to make it perfect. You're trying to capture like, like an energy in the moment. Let's say um, a film shoot is going for, let's say, three or four hours, and there's people with a disability. Um, are there scheduled breaks there? Maybe they might need maybe medication. They maybe need a bit of a rest. Is that actually built into a film schedule, or um, is it well, difficult? I, I, I didn't really notice that as part of that process, and I think everybody is difficult in their own way. Like, you know, pop stars can be difficult and annoying and have limitations on their time and have to go do damn radio interviews sometime like in the middle of it or you know so you're always working around some kind of limitation um so but i like certainly i didn't notice um when we were doing those that i mean people get over it people just like over singing the same song a hundred times and like and if you're not really used to the process i think some people will be like really we have to just sort of keep doing this over and over and over and you have you have to say well um the way it works is uh, coverage so we shoot I think when we're doing Jen's like so hers was a you know she was performing um, in her house so with a guitar uh, sometimes with a guitar sometimes without and sort of singing to herself and we probably did I don't know do we do 20 takes of her kind of singing and I think by the end she's like surely you don't need me to do this any anymore what happens I guess with your editing is the more coverage you have so say you're filming them from the song from beginning to the end um, when you're editing you have a choice of uh, a wide shot from this angle then a closer shot then close-up of the strings and close-up of the eyes and and also if you're doing um, the same angle a couple of times you'll have a different performance and they might um, become more comfortable by take three and so you might find yourself not even using take one or two so from a filmmaker's perspective you just you really want them to do depending on the video, you want them to, to have as many takes as possible because then you have more material to work with. And certainly people can um, not see the point of that. <laughs> I said, well, we'll actually be playing uh, Jen Frank's song called Sutures in My Heart um, to go out with the show. And so people can actually understand more about it. It was a song about domestic violence and domestic violence and disability. It's one of those taboo subjects which isn't really spoken much about at all. Have you ever done films along that line? Um, well, I, I mean, to talk about her, what her video was, like, so she was sort of, we had looked at previous videos and sort of seeing how they kind of captured those kind of topics in videos. But uh, so what we did is we set it up in her house where she was sort of reflecting on a relationship within her house and she had bandages and evidence of some of a kind of a domestic violence situation. And then we filmed a kind of narrative element where... Somebody in this room got to star as the <laughs> as the partner in the domestic violence scenario. So, yeah, no, but didn't. But I think when we were shooting, there were we were 
you guys were sort of yelling in the hallway, um, sort of, you know, I'm shooting in slow-mo, trying to ha- create a dramatic uh, fight scenario. But didn't the neighbours complain because they thought... That the- well, they didn't actually complain. <laughs> is that they're actually going to call for the policing. And that's actually, a, that's actually an insight on how you actually realistic filmmaking uh, when you've even got a disability. It's actually... It's actually we forgot we didn't put the signs at the front to say filming in progress. <laughs> no, but that but that actually happens. I want like one when I was at, at uh, uni. It was a long time ago. I was doing this film that was like a car crash. So it was like the aftermath of a car crash. So the impact is when it started, and then um, somebody is killed. One of the friends, and it's like five friends in a car, and the film just runs for like four minutes and it's just what happens in real time in those four minutes and I remember doing a rehearsal just at a park down the road and at one point three cop cars screamed up and were like running out because people passers-by had thought there was like an enormously dangerous situation going on because of these screams of anguish of the actors so but it means that you know it's sounding right if people um, believe it's true. Have you any advice like what's the role of social media and entertainment? Uh, well, I mean, social media is just ev- you know everywhere now. Like I think, like um, there was a time where people were kind of, God, back in MySpace days, were well, having a page for their band or whatever. But I guess social media is now just sort of integrated into everybody's lives. So if you're at an event, you're like taking a photo and putting on Instagram, or you're um, you have Facebook event pages, and um, you're. I mean, sometimes it feels like events don't exist unless there's a Facebook page for it. You know. Um, because because I use it as a calendar to to remind me um, what's on. So some things just only exist on social media. And obviously, if you have a music video, you can share it through those um, those channels. I mean, and also uh, like you think about SoundCloud or Bandcamp or um, any of those sites that are specifically for music. Um, they have communities that follow them, or people uh, collect um, playlists and things and have recommended. Um, if you listen to something, there will be recommended another artist or, you know, follow somebody else's stream or someone else's playlist. So I think social media is just integrated into to life completely now and, and particularly for entertainment or people who are um, wanting to promote their work or their art. Well, how does a person deal with it if, let's say, they receive negative or adverse feedback on a socially made website about work they've actually produced? Uh, well, I mean, I think that also comes with social media. Like, the, the way, where I see that most negative, so I have a lot of friends who are feminist commentators and who write editorial pieces as feminists. And, well, like, the negative comments on that are, are incredible and they're, like, alarming and, like, they need to be reported to Facebook or sometimes the police. So, um, but... I mean, and those people can become very upset about uh, those comments or that feedback, but they also use it in order to... to show why how necessary it is to be discussing feminism because I mean I can't remember what the, there's a certain law that said says that the the comments on the articles about feminism are proof in itself why feminism is necessary so um, I mean in those cases those people can use those comments as a means of strengthening uh, the focus of the group um, but I mean in terms of like a in an entertainment context well there's always delete there's always just like ban you're blocked get away like and I, and I mean I, I think you just have to be, have have a thick skin I think in social media because um there's always going to be haters right haters are going to hate and then just get, get rid of them but you can't there's no point in just not making yourself available to speak uh, or you know or present um because of because of the possibility of negative comments right well it's a, that's an important part because I think that having a disability 
is actually developing a to my way of thinking because I have Asperger's syndrome, which is a hidden disability, is actually having very thick skin about people are going to say what they're going to say anyway, mm. regardless of what a person does say or think there. But from a disability, so that doesn't particularly bother me. If someone actually gives me negative feedback, I say, hey, at least somebody's actually seen or read something. I mean, mm. it's not too bad. And for each person that actually might see that, there's probably going to be other people that don't get around to posting something which they happen to really like a lot as well. I don't think there's any really right answer. Mm. No, no. I mean, the worst case would be to just to I mean to just make yourself not available. But I do have friends who don't have Facebook um, and don't use Twitter, and and they they find it creepy or find it too exposed, and just don't really want to participate in that, um, which is like totally understandable as well. Um, I've got you know one friend who doesn't like to speak on any chats other than encrypted um, programs. So we talk on Telegram, which is apparently what ISIS uses. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> okay. I, know, I know that the federal government has actually got a little thing where they actually restore all your data for the next two years. It's mandatory by the telecommunications provider. But that, that's, I mean, that's fantastic. I love this. Okay. So, I mean, it's, I've always – my attitude with social media is that um, I feel – like everybody only like mostly just cares about their own life because that's like what else have they got time to worry about? So they don't really care what I'm doing. So I almost feel invisible in whatever I post because surely no one really cares about my life. So that's almost like I feel a privacy just due to the nature of the way people are, which is mostly only caring about themselves. <laughs> Is that bleak? I don't know. Maybe that's bleak. Well, I think that well, that's almost like a variation of. George Orwell's 1984, this is the world which we happen to live in, a telecommunications age. Mm. But what suggestions would you give for people with a disability if they actually wanted to work in entertainment, how to approach it? Oh, look, I, th- I think um, working in entertainment is hard for everybody because essentially what it's become in this kind of like capitalist age is it's people don't want to pay for things that people enjoy doing. Um, so, you know, and increasingly with losing government funding to kind of support arts in Australia, um, you, you're sort of seeing disappearing, um, finances for a lot of, a lot of creation of work. Like I used to be able to make uh, money making music videos. That doesn't really exist anymore. They have become more of a hobby. Feature filmmaking, unless it's, um, blockbuster films like you you see the directors speak at near four and a lot of these people are not earning a living from these feature films they make even though they're touring around the world and they're, they're doing it from another arena or like i guess you know bands now make money through live performance rather than music sales so <clears throat> you know like so, so really like a question of making a living from it i don't know man i i find that hard all the time um but doing it like surely doing it is not hard you just have to uh keep putting yourself out there keep writing keep creating keep um sharing keep risking i guess so um so i think those are two different ideas Uh, doing something as a career as a means of making a living or actually doing it to be an artist um they're almost like separate concepts well it's a um that's a nice um point there because one of the things about having a disability is actually trying to keep it real. That I guess that if a person is not going to actually say, if they say that okay, I've got the, I'm the world's greatest storyteller, the world's greatest songwriter, I'm a fantastic comedian, and they don't actually have social media, mm. 
how are they actually going to make a breakthrough? I really have to ask myself, is that actually going to be possible? Are they actually being maybe delusional or not prepared to put up with it? It's, or what's actually the dream? And I guess that with New Year's Eve being tomorrow night, if you think about New Year's resolutions, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind to actually be authentic to what that dream really, really is. Um, and also I think that dreams are really hard. It's not just because, you know, like I I know in myself and I know in a lot of people that are around, like it's very easy to have an idea or have um, a sense or an imagination of what could be or what could be done. But really the process is is sitting down and doing an enormous amount of hard, horrible, lonely work to actually make things happen. I'm particularly thinking in terms of writing, like I'm like writing feature films at the moment and that's something that's a really – I haven't made a feature film and it's something that I really want to do and I, I want to create something that is very personal to me and expresses my like perception of the world and it's horrible and lonely and hard and difficult because I want to do it so much and because it is just a difficult thing to do. And so you can talk about um, wanting to be a, the greatest comedian or pop star or whatever, but until you're willing to – to totally commit to that dream and do the hard slog. It's never going to happen. Right. Well, is it, how do you actually deal with loneliness? Well, I've, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> That's like the essential human question about life. Like, so, I mean, like, the, I guess some of the film, like I've just made a film, it's like a sci-fi, and I, like, I think that is essentially about loneliness. Um, it's a story... It's a short film. It's called A Terrible Beauty, and it's about a. It's set in 2060, and it's about a, robot, a roboticist who's invented soulmate robots. Um, so the first one replaces her mother when she dies, and the second one is her lover or partner. And the idea, believing that, is that she believes that you can rid yourself of that kind of loneliness or betrayal or loss or grief by having these robots. Um, that will can never let you down, can never die, can never disappear. Um, but in, in the course of the story, the fa- the father destroys the mother robot out of sort of repressed grief, and she sort of she has to confront um, what her idea of what love is. So I guess in that story, um, and what my personal belief is, is that you have to have the ability to lose, you have to have the ability to be lonely. Um, and all that pain is essentially what makes um, what makes all the highs possible. It makes being makes you essentially human. So yeah, you just got to deal with the loneliness. <laughs> well, as I said, it's been lovely talking to you for the past half hour, especially on the theme of loneliness, because having a disability, especially around Christmas time, years can be a very lonely time of the year at the best of times. How can people actually learn more about entertainment? Have you got a website they might like to look at? Um, well, you can look at my website, www.sarahjanewoolahan.com. Well, so I'd like to thank very much our guest, Sarah Jane Woolahan, for coming to the studio tonight. We at The Boldness like to say thank you very much for listening for the entire year. Stay tuned for Tamil Voices, which is coming up next. I'm Rafael Collab. We'll be back in February. Thank you very much for listening and have a fantastic uh, new year. We're going out with a song, Sutures in the Heart by Jen Frank. The knives that you threw, the pain it caused was new. The doctor only just stopped the bleeding with the stitches that he gave to me for all to see.
Therefore 